Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are joined by a coaching legend, Pete Cowan. If you haven't heard of Pete, that's probably a bit by design. He prefers to stay under the radar, but amongst coaches, and I'd say most tour players, he's probably one of the most highly regarded and admired of anyone working on tour. And that's just due to his amazing track record and the sheer number of great players that have sought out him for support. And he's worked with virtually every European Ryder Cup player for the last 20 years. His clients have won over 200 titles worldwide including 11 majors, most recently from Brooks Kepka, Henrik Stenson, and Gary Woodland. And he's just cool. You'll see him wearing all black on the range. He looks a bit hard. He kind of reminds me of a character from a Guy Ritchie movie. He just has this aura about him that's quite impressive. So it was a joy to get him on for a chat. I know it was a thrill for Cam and I. Uh, whenever you get a chance to be around and talk golf with someone with so many years of experience and success, it's a good idea just to sit back and listen, soak it all in. And we're excited for him to share all of that wisdom with you this week. So please enjoy. Uh, one quick reminder before you listen, hopefully you saw on social media or our email list that we just released an online course designed specifically for tournament players called Prime to Perform. Uh, for the first time ever, you'll be able to create the exact same customized tournament readiness plan that we deliver to our professional clients every week on the PGA Tour, LPGA, European Tours, and Corn Ferry. So if you're a tournament golfer, this is designed to be your ultimate guide to world-class preparation. It includes over 20 video lessons in our Prime to Perform workbook, which is basically your step-by-step -step essential checklist for getting Prime to Perform for your next event. So as soon as you're done listening to Pete, go to altusacademy.teachable.com for more details. We hope you'll check it out. But first, enjoy episode 73 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Pete Cowan. Hey, Pete, thanks for joining us in the research for the podcast. I found out a lot more than I thought I already knew about you, and there was a lot that I knew about you. But there's also a 15-year gap in kind of the timeline that I'm unclear on, and I think it's important just kind of create some context for the listeners and for us as we continue the conversation. I already knew you played professional on the European tour from 1970 to 1980, winning once in Africa, battled a back injury that sidelined you for two years in that 10-year window. As many golf professionals or professional players were back then, you were self-funded your entire pro journey. And then you took a club professional job back home in Sheffield. So from, I guess the question is 1980 to 1995-ish, what was happening in the life of Pete Cowan and when did coaching on tour come into the mix? Uh, well, I was a club pro uh, at a place called Doran Totley in Sheffield. I spent uh, 10 years there. Wasn't great practice facilities, so I struggled to teach as well as I would have liked, although I had a development program going on with young kids. So I quite enjoyed that. And then after that, I'd played a lot with the members and took an awful lot of money off them because coming off tour, you know, they like to play the club pro on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we had uh, money games on Tuesdays and Thursdays and they really struggled to beat me. So it was, <laughs> I had to leave town, I think. <laughs> and I got another club job at a place called Lindrick, who, which held the Ryder Cup in 1957. They had great practice facilities. And so my coaching went on from there. I had became probably the best quick fix it coach in Britain and all your you know listeners will actually realize that as a golf pro that probably that's your bread and butter you know quick fix it guy comes along wants a quick fix it for his slice or his hook he wants to play the medal at the weekend and I was pretty good at that but in the background I had a development program with some kids and I used to not charge the kids I just wanted to develop them as kids and knew I'd got three really great kids coming through and they seemed to win everything. They won the English Amateur, the British Amateur, the English Ladies Amateur a few times. So mm -hmm. from that, then it developed into teaching the pros because obviously they saw the results we were having, what's happening over there at the golf club. And then Westwood and Clark came along in the mid-90s. And from there, it just snowballed, really. As you reflect back on those very early days of learning and coaching and traveling with those professional players and you were approached with, with coaching Westwood and Clark, how did you tackle that challenge, which, you know, clearly you had confidence in your ability to help them out with as evidenced by how you structured your pay, which was based on just their performance. But what, what actions or steps did you take to really seize that opportunity and have it serve as the springboard to this long career that you've had with coaching so many of the best players in the world? 
Well, with Westwood came along first, and he lived very local to Lindrick Golf Club. So I'd seen him as a, a, a boy and taught him, and he'd won the British Youth's uh, early doors, and then he'd had a lot of lessons off the local pro where he was uh, a member. And then he, his, his manager, Chubby Chandler, asked me to see him in 94, I think it was, 95, and he'd just played a third of the season, Eleven. there was 33 tournaments in the season, he'd played 11 tournaments, and he'd only won £7,000. So he was really struggling, and he came along to Lindrick, and I said, yeah, I'll help him. So I helped him understand his golf swing. He was short and wild at the time, which really is not a Westwood. As we've seen him, he's probably the best driver, one of the best drivers of the ball over the last you know, 25 years in golf. And he was short and wild at the time. So I made him understand his golf swing, what worked for him and what didn't. And his manager says, well, how's he going to get on? I said, well, if he does as he's told, he's probably you know, going to win an awful lot of money this season. And so after that, at the next 22 tournaments, he wins. He won £600,000. So mm-hmm. it, it actually snowballed from there, really. And Clark came along just after that, and he started winning. So it was it was a snowball effect. The steps to become a good coach and then the steps to become a great coach. I want to kind of pull on that thread, if we can, a little bit. I read where you were trying to, uh, through your contacts, Gardner Dickinson being one of them perhaps, get access to watch Mr. Hogan. And you also took lessons down in Florida for which you paid a lot of money. But yet I think I read, and if this is a misquote, then certainly correct the record. The value of those was less or little to none compared with the experience that came from cutting your teeth as a coach. So in terms of like the evolution of you getting better as a coach, what would you point to the one or two things or the one or two people that were most influential to you getting really good, really quick? On tour. Well, as I say, I'd had that, uh, that was in 1978 or 79 when I went to see Gardner Dickinson mm. down in West Palm Beach. And yes, it was an awful lot of money. Luckily, I was sponsored at the time, so I got help from the sponsors paying that. And then I asked Gardner Dickinson if he could ring Mr. Hogan up and ask him if I could go and watch him practice. And Gardner Dickinson said, yeah, I can do, but, you know, I could ring him up and he's down in Fort Worth. You could fly down there tomorrow and he might just decide he's not going to practice and say, no, we can't watch him. So if I was you, I'd sit and watch Jack Grout teach Nicholas for the next, you know, fortnight, mm-hmm. uh, 14 days. And as Nicholas was one of the best players in the world, then I sat and watched that. And Ray Floyd came along, had lessons off Jack Grout at the same time. So listening was interesting i made all the notes in my book what all the lessons were about i've still got them and when i read back it's not really relative to what we all know now so it was just old school unfortunately it actually didn't make much sense when i read back now as to where we we've come to now but there again that's progress if you don't make progress somebody's going to say that about us in 20 years time certainly me when i'm gone is going to say that but there's got to be progress so we made progress, we understood. And I only started really coaching at a really high level when I understood the physiology of the golf swing, you know, how the body works, how the muscle structure works. And Ramsey McMaster was my, well, he was my sidekick for a while. As I say, Scotsman working in Australia, I think he worked for um, the Australian Golf Union for a while Correct. out there. Great lad. Unfortunately, been died, dead nine years now. It seems a long time, nearly 10 years. And... He was an inspiration to me, un- making me understand that it's not just a go- about moving the club, it's about what moves the club mm-hmm. and how we get the best out of each player, physiologically-wise, and make sure that they can do that under the most extreme pressure. But we looked at players and said, well, unless they can actually make the movement, how are they going to actually create consistency under pressure so the more constants we could create the more consistency we get so we had to build on what we thought were the constants in a golf swing although we allowed everybody to have natural movements as well which we enhanced really Mm -hmm. so i let the players be themselves but also added to it yeah very interesting and it segues nicely into the next question which is about coaching superpowers and you probably alluded to one significant superpower you have which is understanding the mechanics behind what you see that's moving the club the body but i read a quote 
after Henrik won the Open, that and that quote was that you didn't perceive yourself as a great coach, whereas any person that knows you, whether it's from uh, close up or arm's length or distant, would think of you as a super coach, as one of the super coaches in golf. So they would all say bollocks to that. But I'm wondering if this was a misquote. And if it's not, has your opinion of yourself changed since that? Well, I don't really know what great coaches do it because I don't I'm not the one hitting the shots so you know when we say great coaches uh, if I was hitting the shots as well I would call myself a great coach and a great player but getting the players to actually do what Henrik did took an awful lot long time I started in 01 end of 01 with him and obviously it took 15 years to get him where he was at the opening 2016 at Troon so I still thought the actual journey was I was still on the way. So I always say, and that's why I would never say that, because I always say the road to success is always under construction. You never get there. And when you start saying you've got there, that's when you start going backwards. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why I made that quote at the time. As you recognize that you're always getting better, and that's obviously one of the biggest traits of a coach, that continuous improvement and attitude towards developing every day. To follow up on Cam's question and maybe ask it in a different way, what are the traits then of someone who is really good? So, so meaning, what are the traits or characteristics that you are pursuing to continuously get better so that a player that's listening or a, an aspiring coach can identify what are those two or three most important characteristics that a great coach, that we should recognize in a great coach? I think it's getting the best out of the player that you can. Um, again, you might teach a kid at 12 years old and take him to a major champion, which obviously Cameron's done with Jordan. And I've done that a little bit with players. Uh, Stenson was the main one. He couldn't hit a, you know, a cow's ass with a banjo. When I started working with him, you know, a five iron would miss my range left and right. So it was a re complete rebuild. So that in itself, you learn an awful lot from that. But developing young kids as well, you learn an awful lot from that. So there's a lot of things that you learn from different people. And knowing how to get the best out of your player is the best. I mean, some of them you really need to be very hard on them. And other players, you need to have a kid glove and help them along the way. Because I know it with my own sons, I always said to them, I, I tried to force them to be a good player by saying, you're not good at that, get better. You're not good at well. And then my kids rebel and said, well, if my dad says I'm not very good, then I'm not very good. And then they, they give up. So there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to get the best out of each player. And I learned from that from my own kids. So... I try and say the right things to the right player all the time. I'm not sure I do it all the time, but I certainly get most out of most people that I teach. I'd love if you could follow up or elaborate on that idea, because I did in doing some research found a quote from you that said that sometimes you are serving as a confidence coach. But then I also contrast that with your reputation, which is being someone who is a straight shooter and that will be direct even when it may be difficult to do with a player. So as a coach who would uh, myself who would strive to have that similar balance, what are the tricks to being able to know when to use each of those approaches, when to cultivate that confidence and when it's time to have a little tougher conversation? You can't get the tougher conversation all the time. That's got to really be an have an impact. So if you're saying the same thing all the time, it doesn't have the impact. And you're very, very stable all the way through. And then all of a sudden, bang, you go. And that gives them the massive jolt that they say, wow, yeah, I really need to do something now. I need to get my, you know, my gaming gear and uh, do the work. And I, I said to Stenson a few years ago, actually, that I thought I wanted which really gave him a jolt. I wanted success for him more than he wanted for his, himself. And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't. I said, well, I, I think that. He says, I said, because I believe in you, but you obviously don't believe in yourself. And this was four weeks before he won the Open, five weeks. And I'd watched him play Oakmont in the US Open, the one that Dustin won. And he'd played really good in the first round, and then he gave up the second round. And that's when I pulled him to one side in Germany and said, I think I want success for you more than you want for yourself. After watching you do that, I put so much effort into it. 
and you're not giving me the same effort back, you know, I think you need to get your gaming gear. And he won that week in Germany, and four weeks later he gave us that performance in Troon. So it does work. It does work a lot. I did the same with Brooks at Erin Hills. I gave him a bit of a jolt on the practice range at Erin Hills, having watched him play round Memphis. Funny enough, Memphis, his dog's dead. His shoulders were down. He, he, you know, he didn't. His body language was terrible. And I said, with that attitude, you're going to win nothing. So you decide whether you're going to have an attitude of a champion or the attitude that you've got and win nothing. And that really jolted him. I said, that's the challenge I'm going to give you this week. And he said, I accept the challenge. And, of course, he won. And then he's gone on to win three more. So it does work with a lot of people. I didn't have to do it with Gary Woodland. I just had to show him how his short game was going to get better. And, you know, we all saw that chip on 17. Well, if, if you'd have seen Gary hit that chip two years before I started with him, there'd have been a sod on them. There'd have been a sod. <laughs> It's interesting trying to get the best out of the players, but also getting the confidence to be able to do what you want them to do. And that's why I said, if I had my time to move over again, I think you've heard the quote many, many times that, you know, it takes about one and a half seconds to hit a golf shot physically. And then a round of full round of golf, you hit 40 full shots maximum, talking about good players now. So when you multiply 40 shots by one and a half seconds, 60 seconds, you've done one minute's physical work in a round of golf that you expect to be great at. Mm-hmm. I always say, how many great shots did you really hit? And they all say, oh, five or six. I said, well, that's nine or 10 seconds great work and 50 seconds horrendous work. So, you know, you're not going to get better with that. And then you go and hit 400 balls on the range in the afternoon, which you don't, but let's say you did 400 multiplied by one and a half seconds. That's 600 seconds. That's 10 minutes physical work you've done on your golf swing. It's probably taking you another four and a half, five hours to do. So in a, in a day, you've played around the golf and hit 400 balls, which is probably in work, 10 hours work, but it isn't. It's 11, 11 minutes work physiologically. So that's why we started getting the physiological movement right, because in a day, you're not doing a lot of physical works. So if you turn around to an Olympic athlete and as a top golfer said, well, I'm doing 11 minutes physical work in a day to become the best player in the world, they'd all laugh at you. So you need to be a bit more than that. You need to be a lot more than that. So that's why I would, I did more, that's why I had a bad bat. I did more hitting balls than anybody. I used to hit 1,000 balls a day, which was ridiculous. Some people still do it. VJ probably still does it. He's probably the only one. And we used to fight about on the European tour to be the last, last on the range with me and VJ. And, and Sevi was one as well that was always last on the range. So they were a lot better than me, but I thought I had to outwork them and just hit more balls than them. That was the way we did it then. I'm curious, Pete, if we can go back and, and we'll certainly move to other stories, other players and other like detailed questions, but back to the, the, the Henrik journey. I'm wondering whether there was a tipping point in your work with Henrik and was there a moment that you were able to predict that he'd turned a corner perhaps before the scores began to uh, reflect it? He turned a corner, well, three times he's done it, actually. First time was 04, started in 01, two and a half years later, and I watched him we played, I think it was the Dunhill tournament, and all of a sudden he started it in the shots that I wanted to hit in the tournament. Mm-hmm. And it was almost a snowball effect from there. I think St Andrews allowed him, because there's so much freedom on that course if it's, no, if it's not windy, mm-hmm. allowed him to actually hit the shots and free himself up and almost become the player that he was going to be. That was almost the defining moment. And I think you could do that on a course like a St Andrews where there's not much rough and you can hit it left all day and every day. But obviously the more difficult shots with further left you go. But I saw freedom in him then that, you know, carried on into the next year and into the next year. And then all of a sudden, 2005, 2006, he was the straightest, longest driver on the European tour mm-hmm. and freeing, freeing his mind up as well, which it did. But I think that particular moment, I saw a difference in him. As you speak to just turning the corner with just Henrik, you know, a number of times, did that experience with him help you formulate a template or a framework that you can use now when you're dealing with a player that has lost some of the form that they've had and helping them regain that? Because if you've spent any time around players, we know that no one is exempt from those ebbs and flows in form. Even the best players in the world are going to experience times where it's not quite there. So I'm curious if that experience with Henrik 
shapes how you deal with that process now when you've got a great player that's come to you that's in one of those valleys where form isn't quite there where it's been. And maybe that maybe you answered it there, which is finding ways to have them regain some of that freedom. But I'm curious if there's any other ways that you kind of have a framework for that now to work within. Well, I also said to Henrik quite recently, well, recently, within the last seven or eight years, I said to him, look, you've got where you've got to listening to me about 25% of the time, (laughs) doing what I wanted you to do 25% of the time. And you've won all these tournaments. You've done everything in golf. Think of where you've been if you'd have actually listened and done what I wanted you to do 50% of the time, 75% of the time, 100% of the time. I said, I've seen you go and yes, it's great, great. But you then accept that that's right without pushing yourself a little bit further each time to you know, become that. And so I asked him to do the exercises that we talked about with Ramsey and all the physical exercises that I get the kids to do. And he does them and he becomes really good again. And then he thinks that's it. (laughs) And I said, that's 25% of the journey. And look where you've got to with 25. And I said, if you'd have done 50%, you'd have been number one in the world for five or six years. I said, so, you know, we've got where we're now listen to me and start doing it again. And I think he's listening again. So he's trying again. He's, He's He's going for the third and fourth time. Can you describe to the listener what that physiological work might look like, just so they have an idea of if whether that's mirror work, dry runs, to where you, as you said before, you're not just spending 11 minutes getting better, you're actually uh, ingraining some positive changes. What does that look like for players? Well, you, you think about the muscle structure of the golf swing. So I always try and describe to your listeners and what the golf swing as a car. I always say, right, I'm going to win every race with this car. I want the best engine. I want the best fuel. I want the best steering, and I want the best driver. So I've got the best engine. I've got the best steering. I've got the best driver and the best fuel. So in theory, I should win every race. Why am I not winning every race? Because the transmission is no good. Not transferring the perfect engine to the perfect steering so the driver can't and the fuel doesn't matter. So then I say, well, find out what the transmission is and how it's working and get it working properly, and you'll win every race. So in the golf swing, your body is the engine room, your arm and club are the steering, your brain is the fuel and the driver. So hopefully they're all in good shape. And if they're not, they should be, right? So that's the physiological work, and that's the mental work together. But then I've got all those things, and the ball's still not going where I want it to. Why? Because the transmission and the linkage is no good. It's not transferring that energy from the body to the steering, which is the arm and club movement. So what is the linkage in the golf swing? Go on, answer the question. I'm asking you now. Shoulders. Because the muscle structure in the shoulders determines whether I can deliver the club correctly on the path that I want to. Mm -hmm. So unless you understand what the muscle structure of your shoulders is doing in the golf swing, You can't transfer it. So the only thing you can use is your hand manipulation, which is great because 97, 98% of the players out there, that's what they're still doing. And they're brilliant at it. They're best in the world at it. So they're not going to change until it doesn't work for them. Right, until they have a compelling reason to. Mm. Yeah. And So once I've got the muscle structure right in the shoulders and I've got the body working perfectly, I should be able to hit the ball blindfold because the ball's stationary. Mm Mm-hmm. It's always going to be there. It's not moving. So I should be able to deliver the blow the same every single time if I've got all the structures in place. That's what I truly believe. Obviously, then you've got the difference in lie, the difference in weather, the difference in course conditions. But let's take all those variables out of it and say that if there was no variables, we would be able to do that and we should be able to. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tyless, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. As the conversations generally do, I've got questions that kind of pop in my mind, and we might get back. In fact, probably we'll get back into 
player-specific questions and questions on technique that'll allow us to continue to kind of unpack uh, interesting uh, wisdom uh, of which you're you're filled with. But I've got a couple of business-related questions because there's much that's unique about what you do, perhaps nothing more unique than the business model, the Top 10 Golf Limited, um, where your compensation is linked to a player's results. So I'm curious to understand and for the listeners, for you to help the listeners understand how this came to be. And then further to that, I didn't know this until I read it. So again, fact check it. But you also have a provision in your business model of tithing, meaning if someone leaves, there's still an expectation that some form of their compensation moving forward is left on the table such that the door stays open. True, false? And how did that come to be? That's true because, yes, the top 10 golf limited, I just really trusted myself. And there was it was, it was, it was Westwood and Clark when we first started. And they hadn't won a tournament. So I decided in my wisdom that obviously to get them to play well, they had to finish in the top 10. Right. So my job was to get them to play well. So I thought, well, I deserve compensation if they got top 10 or won tournaments and what have you. And I wasn't bothered about if they weren't in the top 10, I didn't think I'd done my job right. So I said, right, I'll work for top 10. And they're quite happy to pay you when they're finishing top 10 every week or winning every week. Mm-hmm. So that was the model. So keeping the players happy, knowing that, well, I'm not paying him this week because I didn't win enough. So that's no problem. So there's no pressure on them to pay you. It's a big sweat coming down the stretch when you've got a player that looks like they're going to make a top 10 and they make a bogey in the last one and finish 12th or 13th, right? Painful 11th play finishes. Well, we had an awful lot of that, but you know, you can't worry about that. And we had an awful lot. We had in the first five years, I think we had 37 wins with Westwood and Clark. So it was the right thing to do and obviously became the right thing to do. But you're talking about leaving spot in place. It was There was one player uh, years and years ago. He was a top 50 in the world, Ryder Cup player. And his manager rang me up and decided that he was going to do his own thing. He was you know, going to do his... I said, that's fine. I said, but you suddenly realise that in telling his manager that if he leaves and he doesn't leave some part of the contract in place, he's not coming back. And the manager says, oh, I'll I'll speak to him then. I said, well, you speak to him because that's the situation. By that time, I'd been pretty successful. So it it really, and I'd got a lot of really good players. So I really didn't want to keep adding and adding to the players that I'd got. So if they left, I wanted to leave a spot open for them to come back because they were really good players. And I said, right, okay, speak to the player. So he spoke to the player and then he said, well, the player says, no, he's not going to pay anything. I said, that's fine. I'm not going to fall out with any. And I don't fall out with any of the players. If they leave, they leave. But I did say to the manager, well, we've had this conversation and you do realise he can't come back, don't you, if he wants to come back. So the next few tournaments, he played great. I mean, he, he probably won another one and a half million in the next six months a year. And then he started going downhill. And he started going downhill and downhill. And then his manager rang me up about a year later, just over a year later, and said, this player would like to come back. I said, you obviously weren't listening when I said there's no room for him. And the conversation was that if he left without leaving anything in place, there was no way back. I'm sorry, just tell your player, no way back. And, of course, then I had letters from his family asking me to take <laughs> what I did. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. That's my stance, I'm not doing it. And so the players now know that there's no way back. Unless they, and it was only a question of leaving something in place, whether it was a, a slight retainer or it was just to say that, yeah, I'm coming back at some stage sure. or not coming back. It's up to them. But they, they have to leave some part of the contract in place, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, well and I, as you allude to, there's been a lot of success down the road and one of the, or, or along the road. And one of the biggest benefits of that is that it puts you in a position where you can pick and choose your clientele a little bit. And I read that you've said that you wouldn't work with anyone that you didn't like. So what tests does a player need to pass to be invited or accepted into the Pete Cowan stable? I think you just have to be an honest person, really, and likable. And when I talk to them, I, I can tell straight away whether they're you know, really good, honest people straight away. I look them in the eye and you look them in the eye really after as many years as I've looked players in the eye and you see something that you can help with and you think, well, yeah, I do like that guy. I think he can work and I think he can do the right things. And you tell them the situation as well, you know. So I have refused an awful lot of players. 
following up on that, I mean, what makes a, if you've got a client and maybe you can use that young Lee Westwood as an example, what are the things that you're looking for while he was short and wild and then went on to achieve great things? What are the things that you look to identify early on in a relationship with a client that helps you identify that this might be someone that's got something special that's going to be a great client? And and maybe the the other side of that question is, what are the traits that you have observed in certain clients that say this might be a little bit more of a challenge than I'm maybe willing to take on or, or have any kind of interest in taking on? Trust is massive, you know, so I think each the player's got to trust you and you've got to trust the player. But, you know, a little bit of honesty is the key to it from the player and respect i always say there's three things i want from the kids that i teach and i always get young kids to write these three things down i get them to write the three r's down the three r's are number one respect yourself don't disrespect yourself by showing tantrums temper because i was that player and i said it's not going to do you any good so respect yourself you've got to respect others that have helped you to get there like the coach and so you've got to respect everybody, your mum and dad, people that have helped you might be a sponsor. So respect, respect. But the third most important R is you've got to be responsible for your own actions. It's not always somebody else's fault. And I see for and I want that out of all my and I make them write that down. So if they've got that, I think they'll always be successful in, right. in any walk of life. We want to go back and uh, I want to go back, sorry, and ask another business related question. You know, Corey and I are two coaches who do a good deal of collaborating. In fact, not only Corey and I, but any of us on our team collaborating with clients and utilizing that team approach. So I'm interested to hear you speak a bit on your relationship with Mike Walker and, and maybe describe to the listeners what you feel a successful team approach on tour looks like. Uh, well, Mike's worked with me Ooh. Since he was a very young lad, he came on the work experience when he was at Lindrick, when I was at Lindrick, which is a long time ago. Then he went to university, went away, came back. Good player, but he just didn't have the nerve to play. And you, you know, some players get stage fright. They're really, really good players, but they get stage fright and then they can't do it. So I employed him to come to my range, run my range. And obviously he came along with me to tournaments before before he even started on his own getting his own players coming along. So I actually oversee a lot of uh, Mike's stuff, but Mike's got his own way of doing a few things, which I wouldn't want. I'd want him to do, you know, I'd want him to have his own thing, but we collaborate on players like Kiradek, Apibanrat, and obviously Matt Fitzpatrick, who we've had since he was 12 years old, 11 years old. So, and Matt is the role model because Matt never, ever has got stage fright. You look at him and you think, well, he's about five foot seven. He's not very big, you know, and he's in the top 30 in the world now. But Matt has always been one of those players that never got stage fright at any level, whatever level it was. So he comes along and we obviously work together with Matt and Mike does most of the work with Matt now. And he's he's very studious, is Matt. He wants to get better and better and better, but he doesn't see stage fright. And I see that in kids, brilliant players, but... When they go to the highest level, the highest stage, they just can't do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. And I mean, I, I can't work out why sometimes. And I want to come back to that to that point of stage right being something that differentiates and, and uncover a few of the other things that have, have separated the best players that you've been with. But I want to continue down talking about that relationship with Mike and to know the flip side of it. What are the greatest challenges that you guys have overcome over time where you've got two different coaches or a number of coaches directing one player, whether that be an obstacle with a player buying in or a conflicting information? Have you overcome the challenges that, that maybe make that team approach more difficult than if it was just you? I'm the boss. That's <laughs> <It was, that's, laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah, there you go. That works. It's as simple as that. Well, and I know you've got like 17, you've had a, I read somewhere that you had 17 clients at a major tournament, which is mind boggling. I don't Ridiculous. know how that works. That, that's gotta be a record. And maybe that team approach just came out of necessity because there's a scarcity where you've got a high demand on your time and you can't be everywhere at once. So I'd love to know how you manage that time. Like what, what does a typical, and for our listener to understand, what does a Monday through Wednesday look like when you've got so many players in the field and what does the behind the scenes process look like for to help you manage all the information that comes along with each of those unique players and relationships? 
Well, sometimes when you've got 17 players, 10 of them will be playing great and they don't need much looking after. But the one that you're talking about is it was at Loch Lomond, the Scottish Open at Loch Lomond, and they had a temporary clubhouse that was right behind the range. And I was in the temporary clubhouse and I was going to go out onto the range and I looked on the range and all 17 players were <laughs> So do you know what I did? I turned Pissed around off. and went, I went home and came back later. <laughs> I couldn't, win that. I couldn't win that. So that, that's when I decided that enough was enough. I'd got too many players and I needed somebody to help me or I needed to reduce the players. I started reducing players and I got somebody to help me. Mike helped me. So I've got quite a few coaches as well who would be good enough to come out on tour, but they don't want to come out on tour. Going back to explore more what differentiates good, great, and world-class from a player standpoint, you'd mentioned that Matt just at no period in time has ever demonstrated stage fright where some players do. So a pressure-proofing would maybe be a way to phrase that. I'm curious to understand, and I'll give you a quote. You said, I know a lot of players that want to be great players, but I don't know half a dozen that need to be great players. If we use that quote as a starting point on a conversation about what differentiates the best in the world from the rest that are maybe top 50 or top 100 or maybe are struggling to keep their card. What things would you pinpoint beyond a a pressure proofing, beyond an ability to not show stage fright or succumb to stage fright that differentiates the best from the rest? Well, when you're looking at stage fright, a lot of it is looking into the eye of the player uh, at certain times and seeing whether they are going to go the extra mile and, you know, you, you're almost forcing them to go to the, ex, the extra mile. And that's work ethics. It's a little bit of everything, really. Sometimes it's talking to the right person, psychology-wise. And sometimes we use psychologists. Sometimes we don't. The player is his own best psychologist, but he doesn't realise that. There are different levels. And like we said, can you cope with being the best player in the club? Can you cope being the best player in the county? Can you cope with being the best player in your country can you cope with then being so there's many many stages that you start seeing stage fright and unfortunately with a lot of them it always is at the highest level that you start seeing the stage fright whether it's the majors or whatever and they just can't do it i mean they are great great players as well Mm -hmm. you know it's probably not great players they're good players great players win they're good players and very good players but they just can't get over that hurdle uh, whether it's the mental barrier that's inside them. And I think it stems from very being very, very young. And you see at school, you see the kid will answer the questions regardless of whether he embarrasses himself or not. And they get over that embarrassment very, very early on. and Nothing embarrasses them. But you see other kids that, and when I was coaching really young kids in the, the England setup, and they might come along at 13, and you can tell the ones that, really want to do it because they'll step forward and say, can you play this pitch for me? And the ones that shy away and you know that they don't want to get embarrassed by the peers, you think, well, I'm not going to have much success with that. I want the kid that says, I'll have a go, even if they make a fool of themselves. I want them to do it. Kind of like the Rory McIlroy story, right? Where you're with the English or the Irish Golf Union and you you challenged me to hit a bunker shot. Can you tell that one? Yeah, well, I was Irish coach then for a while and Rory was very young, 13, 14, and we were talking about bunker shots. And I said to him, you can't hit this high, soft bunker shot to the back flag, can you, Rory? I can, I can. (laughs) And all these peers were around him. I said, well, show me then. So he, he hit it. He couldn't hit the high, soft bunker shot. I said, no, no, I like this. So I showed him the high, soft bunker shot. And he tried to hit it again. And he was going to have another go. I said, no, no, you've had your go. You can't do it. You can't do it again. He says, well, next time I come, I'll I'll be able to do that. And so I saw him like a month, two months later. First thing he ran up, I can hit that high soft bunker shot now. <laughs> that's the first thing he did for me, hit the high soft bunker So that's what you want to see in the kids, you know, the challenge and then go away and challenge themselves as well as you challenging them mm-hmm. and make sure that they can actually – move forward in in themselves as a person. How about outside of those kind of innate intangibles that you speak to that are personality 
traits that we could argue and it's debatable if it's how much of that we can influence as coaches. But as you've worked with so many different individuals that have been successful, are there a common set or maybe a few common set of daily actions that you've witnessed or identified from your time with these players that are critical to how they've continued to develop and maintain the form that they have? Just not necessarily the personality traits, but just those actions that they take consistently to maintain that that level of performance. Well, I, I think with, with any of the players, you've got to know what their focus is on their training, how they train, how they practice. And I, I see an awful lot of people don't practice well enough. And that's where we try and instill them. I always challenge the players to hit the nine shots all the time. I always challenge the players to have a particular purpose in the practice. And I always say there's got to be a meaning to every shot that you hit. And this is what I try and instill in all the players. Do not hit a shot if you don't know what you were trying to do. If you don't know what you're trying to do, how do you know if you succeeded? What shot are you trying to hit? They stand on the range and hit shots. I said, well, what good is that? Unless you have a purpose in the shot and the purpose is real, then what's the point in just not focusing on that shot and telling me that you've succeeded when I know it wasn't the shot you tried to hit? So you're challenging them all the time. I think you've got to challenge them as a coach to become better, to become a better player. When it, when it go on the golf course and, you know, why have you hit that shot? And, and challenge them all the time, every time you go out there. But on, certainly on the range, there's no point in hitting a shot unless you know you knew the intent. So I always say practice has got to have intent. If you didn't know what you intended to do, how do you know if you succeeded? So I always challenge them to actually hit the nine shots in the right order. And sometimes I practice, I'll say, right, unless you hit them in the right order and hit them correctly, you've got to start again. A bit like going round the putting green, the six footers round the putting green, you challenge yourself. Well, we don't get enough challenges on the range. So they hit shots and then they go away. I said, you don't know whether you've succeeded or not. That's the problem. And that happens far too often for me. So I have to have intent in the practice. So if it's a technical session, I've got to know that technically they're doing the thing. I'm not really bothered about the outcome as long as the movement is correct. And sometimes I'll get them to make the movement without it in shots. And then they know what the correct movement is. But physiologically, unless the body is doing the right thing all the time, you've got too many compensations in what the other things are doing. And then under pressure, it's all going to break down. Sure. Being respectful of your time, you've, you've given us a lot and we have some quick hits that we typically finish with, if that's okay. Yeah, fine. Okay. What do you enjoy most about being on the road 30 plus weeks a year? Being away from home. No, I'm, I don't <laughs> <laughs> I've been married 45 years and my wife says the only reason we've been married 45 years is because we've only lived together for three. Yes, yes, <laughs> effectively, that's right. <laughs> no, I, I quite enjoy, at my age, you know, I quite enjoy being around young people who make me feel a bit younger, really. I think I like that. I like the camaraderie. I don't like the last few weeks that I've been in Memphis and USPGA because without the crowds and it was hollow, it was not great, didn't enjoy that. And if it continued like that, I'd have to have a rethink about doing all the traveling all over the world because I wouldn't get much satisfaction out of that at all, mm -hmm. you know, satisfaction of the players. I mean, the crowds weren't there. The players couldn't tell who was doing any good. Yeah, yes, there were scoreboards, but they couldn't really tell who was any good. There was no cheers. There was no pressure. It was like, you know, 140 guys going around and having a social four ball every day. It was, it, it was bizarre. I did enjoy that before that i enjoyed it because i enjoy the challenge of getting the players to play well and that, that's the simple challenge and that's why i said the road to success is always under construction you never get there what's one thing that you would change about coaching on tour and what that looks like now i probably wouldn't spend as much time on tour because a lot of it's hollow you're there as a comfort blanket which is fine sometimes but I think other times they need their own space. They need to know what they're doing and they need to go out and compete rather than compete on the range, which I see a lot of players competing on the range. And that's not right. That, that reminds me of something that I read that you had said that, that in some cases you see yourself more as consultant than coach. Can you elaborate on maybe what the distinction is between those two? Well, if you've done your work and you've got the player how you, you, know, how you want him, then you really are 
observing practice consulting if you like observing make sure they practice correctly make sure they go out on the course correctly i'm looking at the demeanor the body language and the only thing that makes a great player is a great attitude it really is they a lot of them have all got everything they need to become great but it's the attitude that i see and a, a poor attitude like me when i played i had the worst attitude in the world so i know it doesn't work i really know it doesn't work and i tell the players you know, if you've got an attitude like that, you're going to finish up like me, coaching on tour. So <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> From a skill standpoint, best short game player you've either coached, coached up, or been around. And I know you've been a lot around Gary Player and Seve back in the day. So, Well, Seve was unbelievable. But, you know, you, you asked Seve how he played a shot. And I always said to him, Seve, well, how do you hit a high shot, Seve? Uh, when I hit it high, I put the butt end in my pocket this way. Put the butt end in my pocket. So he, all he did was put the butt end of the club in his pocket high yeah. to hit that shot. I said, well, how do you hit the low shot, Seve? And when I hit the low shot, I put the butt end in my pocket low. So that's, <laughs> that's all you could say. And then when he, we watched him play bunker shots, he was the first guy, because I was taught by a player originally, and, and player was strike the match, strike the match, all about speed. And a lot of players' stuff has still got that trait of left to right spin, left to right spin. Yep. And I always hit that shot. And when I hit a really good bunker shot, I always thought, well, I've pulled it. And that, I suddenly realized after a few years that they were the best shots. Mm. And then when I watched Seve eventually, because he was a bit younger than me, I watched Seve play the bunker shot. And every bunker shot he hit, it ran like a putt. Or if he had to spin it, he spin it. But he didn't spin it that often. Alathabal spins it all the time, but Seve had the ball running like a putt on the green. So he couldn't tell you how he did it, so you had to watch him. And he was the first one that stood more, more square on it and actually got the, the actual pressure of the sand to move the ball. He wasn't spinning the sand hard mm -hmm. left to right all the time, which everybody was taught at the time, you know, stand open, open the face, move across the toes, you know. And probably Rumford is probably the best monkish player out of a good lie. I've ever seen hmm. Brett Rumford. Yeah, I've coached Brett for a while, but he had a mentor in Australia. I can't remember. He died of he died of uh, cancer years ago. You probably know him, Cameron. He, uh, familiar, uh, but the name's failing me right now. Move on. Failing uh, me now, but he died of cancer. And he was he was a brilliant component of bunker shots. Mm -hmm. But Brett was brilliant out of good life. So when I was coaching him at uh, I think it was Hoylake years ago, Brett was he was working with me at the time, and his caddy said. You're a good bunker player, and Brett's a good bunker player. Why don't you have a competition? I said, well, I'll have a competition with him, but it's got to be out of bad lies. <laughs> too good out of good lies. Of which you're very good. You have a secret sauce for spinning bunker yeah. shots from buried lies that you've never <laughs> told me. You've got to tell me now. I can spin a bunker shot out of a bad lie, out of a plug lie. But we had five shots out of bad lies. The yep. caddy picked all the lies, at, at, and it was at the range at uh, Hoylake at the Open. And, of course, I beat Brett. And I've never given him a chance to get... Yeah. <laughs> of course you wouldn't. <laughs> Retire from that. But he's a tremendous bunker player. Tom Peters probably at the moment is the best at it, that I coach. Mm -hmm. uh, he's wonderful pitcher, wonderful bunker player, but a wonderful player. And we need to get him out there again and winning big tournaments yeah. because he's massive, massive talent. Yeah, and I'm sure he will. Do you care to elaborate at all on rippling the sand, spinning it from a Barry Bunker liar? Is that too difficult over the airwaves? Uh, you'd have to see it. Okay. You'd have to see it to believe. Well, lot, most players don't believe it until they see it. And this this year, it was uh, we were at uh, a Jeju, and Jason Day was asking me, "Oh, you've not shown me that spinning out the you know plug lie yet." And then I was at the I with, with Brandon Grace in the bunker, and he just walked past me at uh, Jason, and Bright, um, Gracie was saying, "Well, show us that you know bunker shot that you spin out of a plug." So he plugged it in, and I hit it, and it was spinning on the greens. And Gracie shouted today, "Look, he's spinning! He's spinning!" He's spinning. <laughs> and, and Jason turned around. And he said, "I've missed it! I've missed it!" I said, "I ain't going to show you again." I'm oh, not nice. gonna spin it. <laughs> Uh, so it can be done, but it, it's hard. But you, again, I learn more out of bunker shots than anything because I'm pressurizing the sand to move the ball in the way I want it to react. So we don't hit the ball. So I've got to make a proper movement to make the sand move the ball. 
So I learned more out of bunkers. One of the questions that we ask nearly everyone that we've talked to, and we're kind of building up this library of very diverse responses to this that we'd love to add yours to, is what are your thoughts on swing thoughts? How many to have? Whether or not you can play your best golf with swing thoughts. We have some players that say, I try to be blank. Others that say, I play, I'm okay playing with one or two. And we've got a lot of really different opinions on this. Where do you stand with sending a player out to perform with a technical cue or a number of those? Yeah, you'd only have one swing thought. I think one's enough. And a lot of players do like a swing thought. Some players say they, you know, don't even think, they just think about it. But if they're thinking about the shot, they're thinking about, you know, a swing thought. So I always say, and there's a quote that's been quoted many, many times, not my quote, but the least important golf shot you ever hit is the one you've just hit. The most important shot you hit is the next one. So everybody says live in that moment, but you've got to get rid of the one that's gone, which is the hardest part. And I don't see players get rid of it often enough. We've seen far too many of our players, Cameron have seen it where they've three putted and the next tee shots horrendous, you know, because it's still in there and they can't get rid. They can't get rid of the last shot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'd like the players to, if they're going to have one swing thought, think about the next shot, not about the one they've just hit. With a coaching career filled with so much success, the, I guess as a close, uh, the question I have is what remains left on your goal list? I've got a grandson that wants to be a good player, so I'd like to bring him along and you know show him the ropes. And if I don't make him a good player, I'd like to make him a good coach because he's really interested in golf. He's too bright for golf, though. He's too clever. So <laughs> he, he probably won't. He won't become. You've either got to be completely thick or ultra intelligent. The mid, the mid grounds, not not a great place for a golfer. You've been amazing with your time. Fantastic conversation. And finally, if people want more information about you uh, or contact to the coaches that you have at your academies all over the world, where would they go? Uh, we've got the website. The website is, I forget what it is, but it's it's somewhere there. I don't do websites. I don't do <laughs> social media. I don't do all that. But one of the guys at the range, he does, you know, www.petecowan.com, I think it is. So, and we've got, whew, I think we've got 19 coaches in Dubai that work on the three academies there. They're all good lads and really good coaches with two Irish men run it for us. So we've got, you know, a good group there. The Irish are brilliant. And they're all good coaches. Uh, I spend a lot of time with them coaching the coaches so and they, sure. they enjoy me you know giving a little bit of demonstration on the short game and they learn quite a bit but i've always said to them you know get the players to actually get their body action reasonably good before you start putting a club in the hand beautiful beautiful hey, can't thank you enough for your time i'll look forward to next time i cross paths with you out on tour all, pro- all the best lads all cheers right. Corey. thanks cheers, cheers mate. bye-bye bye-bye cheers Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.